slash and cast. Welcome back, fiends, to Handle with Scare, presented by the Slash and Cast Podcast Network. Our show discusses horror movies and the phobias they emphasize. Throughout the month, we've been taking a closer look at necrophobia and the extreme or irrational fear of death or dead bodies in horror. Before I introduce tonight's film and my co-host, just a few general reminders for you. You can stay connected with us over on X at Handle with Scare. And be sure to join us for our Twisted Tuesday and Thursday watch parties, which are usually every Tuesday and Thursday night at 7.30 p.m. Pacific Time over at kick.com slash tumbledruck. Now, with that being said, as always, I am joined by my co-host, Grindhouse Zombie. And, uh, you know, tonight we, uh... The dad are basically returning to life to seek human victims in what I'm, what other way can you describe this movie other than just an absolute classic in Night of the Living Dead. Of course, this should come, come as no surprise to you guys that this was Grindhouse's pick. I mean, he is all things zombie, so here we are uh, doing one of the quintessential zombie films. Uh, and something that still throughout all of these years holds up so fucking well. Yeah, I mean, it's ultimately the one of the things I enjoy that's only slightly older than I am. So, I mean, it's kind of, uh, well, I, I think I've told this story before. I first saw this movie on, like, uh, one of the Saturday Night Creature features that were, you know, back when TV used to end, as we discussed. <laughs> yeah, the whole yeah. Uh, and it was... Uh, Getting into that era where they started having TV past midnight and it was like, well, what's this? You know, so then they but it was always either infomercials or movies. Mm -hmm. Right. And so the first one on at 10 was Night of the Living Dead. And I might have been. Seven or eight when I saw it the first time. Um, and then, you know, right after that was Dawn of the Dead. Um, and. You know, Dawn of the Dead, pretty heavily edited. I mean, there's a lot of things that, you know, when I when I saw Dawn of the Dead, you know, in Toto the first time, it was a completely different experience. But, you know, that Saturday night of staying up too late and not going to bed as I was commanded, that's what cemented Grindhouse Zombie as it is now. Um, and I think you used a great word there, quintessential. I mean, that's what Night of the Living Dead is, is not only quintessential zombie movie making but in a way it's also quintessential movie making that and i think it was the you know it's really the the apple or the carrot for every independent movie maker that has ever come since then to say look yes it can be done now that said make sure you put your fucking copyright on the damn thing <laughs> but um you know don't don't change the name at the last minute and forget to put that little C in a circle in the corner because you fuck yourself out of a lot of money. Um, 
but for all the things that I've seen, all the interviews, um, you know, there's a, a university now that's got quite a um, quite a collection of the the George Romero zeitgeist that um, they got from his wife. It honestly doesn't seem like it's one of those things that he ever really was super concerned about. I mean, yeah, he probably would have had a little more money, but I also don't think he was hurting either. Um, but yeah, just for me, one of the best movies ever made. I mean, just ever made. Um, now, to be fair, uh, Bill Hinsman's Flesh Eaters from uh, 1988 in and of itself is pretty good, too. It, it, it's a fun movie to watch, and they're often compared, and for obvious reasons. Um, but Night of the Living Dead 1968, I mean, it's... For me, as a movie watcher, it's where the zombies started. And I honestly think... For me, to this day, they're still one of the scariest things out there. Um, and for vampires and for all the other things that you have, it's one of the few things that's us, but not us, you know? And the one thing I know that when I look around the world, there's a lot of us. So what happens when there's a lot of not us? <laughs> um, and it just makes it awesome. Yeah, and uh, especially when you compare, you know, the current times compared to uh, 1968, you know, you can just think about how many more of them there can be. You know, we're not living in a world that only has, you know, like three million people like like a way back one. So the numbers are staggering. Well, it really is. I mean, and I think, you know, everybody argues that, you know, George Romero was not trying to tell a story and was not trying to sort of break down societal woes as it was. Um, I, for one, am a complete Romero apologist. I love every single thing that he's done. I even love Amusement Park, put it that way. I love Amusement Park. I think it's great. But he was always saying something. He was always uh, talking about some level of social commentary. So if you think that he wasn't, well, you're just fooling yourself. Um, but at the same time, he did it with he did it with the best possible medium, you know, telling telling about society and the things that it was doing wrong and how it could fall, but doing it at the hands of hordes and hordes of dead people. So, I mean, it, it, there's just for me, there's just nothing better. I mean, in Night of the Living Dead 68 is. It's in my top one favorite movies <laughs> um and you know and it goes back and forth a little bit sometimes it's number one sometimes it's number one it just depends on my mood um you know and we talked about because we've been trying to do so many sort of newer and more first-time watches and mm -hmm. it's i think we've basically copped to the fact that both you and i watch this more than once a year um and there's a reason though and the reason is that it's so damn good. Um, I've, for all the podcasting I've done, I've never discussed this movie before. So this is going to be really fun for me. And I'm going to try to keep my pants on. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to try. I can't promise it, but I'm going to try to keep my pants on. I just never assume you have pants. So like, <laughs> so I'm already, I'm always like prepared, you know, I got to be on my toes regardless. Uh, but it's, it, it is interesting. Cause like, obviously uh, with this being, uh, public domain just due to uh, the lack of copyright. It has 
been one of the most accessible movies ever made. Now, that's not to say that it didn't earn its money in the box office, because it did, and I'll, I'll get into that in, in just a bit. Um, but, you know, looking back at, you know, Night of the Living Dead, when we're talking about independent filmmaking, you know, this was made on a shoestring budget. You know, they had less than $150,000 uh, put towards the film, uh, you know, due to the budget constraints. It was shot in black and white. And, uh, you know, because of that, you know, the crew didn't really have to worry about, you know, what color the blood was. So a lot of the times throughout the movie, uh, the blood that you're seeing displayed on the screen is actually chocolate syrup. Uh, or, you know, they would have like red ink dependent on what sort of desired effect they were looking for the camera shot uh, for the scene. You know, when we're talking about the the makeup for the ghouls, uh, you know, primarily like white fun foundation with darkened eyes uh but what's interesting about like this undead is just the fact that you know they were also using mortician's wax uh for a lot of the wounds and a lot of the decaying flesh and also because of you know budget reasons like when it comes to like the costume designs for the movie uh you know for the most part the cast was either using things that were thrifted or it was just Stuff brought from home as, uh, you know, things from their personal collection as well. Well, and I think that's one of the beautiful parts about independent film in general, and especially when you have people that are this creative and have this big a vision, but also understand their limitations. So they just say, do what you can, right? And there was somebody in the cast, I forget who it is, but had, I think it was an uncle who worked at... Um, a local slaughterhouse. So a lot of like the things that you saw the zombies eating were actual animal guts that they got from the slaughterhouse because they wanted a sense of realism. Um, now kudos to those actors for just taking a, a, a lot. A lot of times it was a cow or a pig bone and just tearing it off and eating it. I mean, I there had to be a lot of sick people. I mean, there just had to be. There's like, just no way around it. Was like it. pre fear factor, <laughs> you know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But the people that got either E. coli or trigonosis off, I mean, there was somebody that spent a weekend hovering over a bucket, you know, it just trying to, trying to give their all to this film. But I mean, I think that's really the beauty of it. And as you go through it scene by scene, I mean, like you can feel, you can feel the passion for what this movie was trying to do and for the people that really that were really there for the whole thing. Um, but then it, when, when all is said and done, and I think one of the really fun things to talk about is that you get to the end of this and you've got you've got George Romero and you've got John Russo and they and they both had pretty different visions for the movie. Um, and. But it seemed like it was from everything that I know, I'm not an expert, but I do love this movie, but. You know, it was George Romero that was really plowing forward and trying to get things done and trying to get things done. And, you know, even at the end, you know, when the movie was done, it was called Night of the Flesh Eaters. That's what it was called. And the reason that it's public domain is because they changed it to Night of the Living Dead and somebody forgot to put the little C in the circle on the panel of the film. So when it was done, you know, and it was playing everywhere, people started to bootleg it like nobody's business because it was not copyrighted and that it became, you know, the horror festival du jour for everything. 
um, whether it was TV, whether it was theaters having, you know, um, big like horror marathons, whatever else, it was playing everywhere. And there are so many, the one I can think of um, right off the top of my head uh, is Jonathan Mawberry. Now, Jonathan Mawberry writes kind of a mixture of young adult and then also adult fiction that can be anything from super spy stuff to zombie stuff. And his zombie stuff is really, really good. In one of his books, um, he gives a foreword where he talks about going to an old dilapidated theater where, you know, the balcony had been, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Had been condemned by the city. But then he had a buddy where they would go up in the balcony. They'd sneak up there anyway, you know, in this creaky-ass balcony and watch movies. And one of the movies that he saw there was Night of the Living Dead. And that's what spurred him to to write the way that he writes. Um, and it's just, it's anecdotal. And, and you could you could dismiss it as kitsch. But it's so the way I feel that I, like, I get it. I totally get it. Um, and... Going forward with, you know, between John Russo and George Romero, I mean, we have a divergence in movies, right? And it took, I mean, it took Russo a little longer to get there than it took Romero. But, I mean, Romero gave us the, you know, the Night of the Living Dead, and they they collaborated on that. And going forward, Romero gave us the Of the Deads, and Russo gave us Of the Living Deads. And now... Arguably, you could say that most of Romero's are better. Um, although Return of the Living Dead is a, cla- I mean, it's a classic too. It just is. Um, I still love the second one. I know a lot of people don't. The third one is torture porn, but that's not <laughs> the worst thing in the world. And then both, uh, what is it? Rave to the Grave, and then oh, what the hell is the other one called? Rave to the Grave and oh damn I can't think of the name anyway those last two they're silly but they're still kind of fun and good zombie movies but they're not on the level of Romero's of the Deads so it was nice that you know people I mean I think everybody loves Night of the Living Dead Dawn of the Dead Day of the Dead I mean those are almost universally revered right um there's a lot of back and forth about Land of the Dead. A lot of people don't like Diary of the Dead. I actually do like it. Um, and then Survival of the Dead just kind of is what it is. I mean, you just kind of got to just take it for what it's worth. But it's a series of movies that ultimately for me are, they're all fantastic for one reason or another. Uh, and Night of the Living Dead is what started the whole thing. And it's just... It's the background of my zombie culture. It's, you know, it's in the foreground of everything that I think of when I think of zombies. So it's so, it's just, they're all just so good. But Night of the Living Dead is, I mean, it's the, the strap yourself in and get on the roller coaster. And if you don't want to be here too bad, you can't get (laughs) off. (laughs) The safety bar is down, man. You're screwed. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And really, Night of the Living Dead is what invented what would eventually become so many different aspects that would uh, become staples in the, the zombie movie genre. Uh, you know, we're talking about, like, the flesh-eating aspect, the 
infectious nature of, uh, you know, the disease, uh, only killing by destroying the brain of the creature. Uh, but, you know, for those who don't know, like, throughout the entirety of the movie, the word zombie is never even muttered or mentioned at all. Uh, they're mostly just referred to as, like, those things, or, you know, them, basically. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's interesting, too, because it's, like, Obviously, we did have divergence in the past, and I, I think for a lot of people, um, you know, when I think more people in general will always like look back at, you know, Dawn of the Dead probably being the quintessential one. But there's no doubt, like, Night of Living Dead is the one that laid all the groundwork for everything that came after. Um, and going back to like when it came out in theaters, uh, you know, this was at a time before we had MPAA ratings at all. Uh, so we had this gory cut in the theaters in the late 60s that could be seen on the big screen for all ages. You know, bring your kids. Why the hell not? Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is absolutely hilarious to think about. Uh, and, you know, during its initial run, it would gross uh, 12 million with, within the U.S. Uh, ended up grossing 18 million worldwide, basically earning 250 times its budget uh, before you know, spawn in five different sequels and a number of different remakes. Uh, now, that being said, I, I, I will just say, like, when it comes to the other uh, offerings within Night of the Living Dead, when it comes to, like, the the remakes, I've only seen bits and pieces. Um, I, I know I, I didn't see... I think it was, like, the 30th anniversary was the one I didn't see. I'm trying to remember what years they came out. Um, but I've, I've always heard, like, so many stories about, like, okay, like, obviously, like, there were rewrites to Barbara's character, uh, between the different versions, and, you know, they, they oh, were, they were going with, with one direction in, in the original, and then it was completely redone, uh, because obviously, like, in Night of Living Dead, you know, we're introduced to Barbara and Johnny, and it really just seems like, okay, Barbara's gonna be, like, our, our, our lead in this movie, and then they do a complete 180, uh, and she just stands and sits there for a majority of the movie, which is comical in its own right. But, uh, you know, we do get a really great scene between her, her and Ben where he just smacks the shit out of her to, like, snap her out of her, her state of shock, uh, essentially. So I've, I've always been curious. Uh, I, I probably will at some point. Uh, I'm trying to think tomorrow, more than likely, I'll go back to, to see the ones that I haven't yet. I just want to see, like, how drastically different, like, the character is just knowing that, you know, regardless of my feelings of the, the original, and I know a lot of people were kind of, like, taken back by the other versions, too, like, saying, like, well, obviously, like, it's not going to hold a candle to the other, but they really weren't reviewed all that well either, so I honestly have no idea what to expect from them. Okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to stretch here before I start talking, because... I'm going to need all the lung capacity I can get. So, yes, the 1990 remake of Night of the Living Dead was chewed apart by people. Um, and uh, fairly unfairly, I, I, to be honest, I don't care. I don't want to have that argument. Um, the 1990 version is just short of being the masterpiece that the original was. Uh, directed by Tom Savini. So, I mean, come on. Um, Bill Mosley as Johnny, again, come on, Patricia Tallman as Barbara, 
who in this version is a completely different character. Now, she starts out kind of similar, kind of timid, kind of like she's going to be, you know, not of a lot of use, but they change her character completely. Um, and normally, I, I tend to be a purist, you know, and it's when it comes to my zombies, it's like, don't fuck with my zombies. That's not cool. This is one of those times where they twisted her and changed her enough where it was like, okay, I think I'm okay with this. Now, it they didn't... What they didn't do is they didn't interrupt the core of the story when they did it, okay? They didn't try to completely change things so everything happened differently and it's a completely different narrative. They didn't do that, and it was smart that they didn't do that. Uh, but the ending of the of the movie is the thing that really sticks with you. That's what really sticks with you. Um, so... If you have not watched that, by all means, definitely do, because um, it is extremely good. And in a way, I kind of think it was an answer to uh, Hinsman's uh, uh, 88 uh, Flesh Eaters. Um, like somebody said, oh, I can do this, but I can do it way better. And Flesh Eaters is a lot of fun. It is not Night of the Living Dead. It is absolutely not. It's definitely a hell of a lot of fun, but it's not the same movie. Now going a little forward and, and going on to the 2004 remake of Dawn of the Dead. It's a different movie. I mean, you could, you could title it something different and it could be a different movie. Um, but it still has a lot of the heart and a lot of the, the social commentary that the original did. And it is in a lot of ways, a masterpiece. Now, is it as good as the original? I mean, it's like saying the, the original is a 10 and the remake is a 9.9. It's like, argue that point one. Argue, like, why bother? Just go, okay, it is what it is. Um, definitely go back and check out the 1990 remake, though, because it's... Yeah, I'm just going to say it's a masterpiece. It really is, in and of its own right. Um, they had more of everything. More special effects, more money, more everything. And they made a movie that is almost as good as the original. So, I mean, that tells you how good the original is. Um, and I know people love to shit all over the remakes and do whatever else. And, and they people like to shit all over the sequels, too. And it's like, well, okay, do that and enjoy your time. But I don't know what you're trying to prove or who you're trying to prove it to. Yep, shooting on remakes is uh, definitely nothing new. Hell, it's going on as we speak with the first images of The Crow with Bill Skarsgård being released earlier via Vanity Fair today. And that's just been an entire cesspool of internet, which is way too much for one day. Uh, so I stopped looking at Twitter because of it. <laughs> um, that was smart. That was smart. <laughs> you know, it, it is what it is. I'm going in with an open mind. Uh, we're getting back to Night of the Living Dead. You know, early concepts were vastly different from uh, what was eventually uh, produced. You had John Russo initially had thought of making a horror comedy about... Uh, basically, these hot rotten alien teenagers who would visit Earth to meet up with uh, human teenagers and, you know, cause a little bit of mischief, as teenagers do, uh, with the help of a cosmic pet. Uh, but budget restraints, you know, definitely made the concept impossible to actually go through. And then this is when he basically had pitched the idea of these uh, flesh eaters. Uh, where a boy would run away from home only to discover a field of corpses under glass, uh, who, of course, are rotten and would end up eventually consuming them. And, of course, the flesh-eating angle is uh, really where things took off. Uh, but, you know, 
there's there's no denying that there is one thing that was a major inspiration uh, for Night of the Living Dead and this sort of angle, and of course, that was I Am Legend uh, by Richard Madison. And, you know, I... <laughs> It's it should be as no surprise, you know, whenever you feel like, I don't know, maybe you've been snubbed or uh, you feel like, oh, well, this is just a ripoff. Like Madison was not fond of Night of the Living Dead when it came out. You know, he thought it was just straight like cornball uh, from from what he was saying. Uh, so take that for, as you will. But like I Am Legend is its own entity, obviously, like. When it comes to apocalypse, like that is typically going to be the first thing that most people are going to think of, uh, regardless of you know the movie adaptation, which was God. I, I don't think I've seen Iron Legend since it was actually in theaters. Uh, now, now that I think about it, well, I mean, and all things being equal, um, it was a it was a it was a decent movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really was. Um, now, if you go back, is it Omega Man? No, mm-hmm. it's not. Um, but different times, different narratives, different writers, different directors, different actors. I mean, when you have things that happen 25, 35, 45 years apart, one of the things I think you have to do is say, okay, there's going to be some differences and you just have to be okay with it. Um, and I think the movie I Am Legend um ultimately has got a lot of heart now i don't i'm not super fond of the the, the quote-unquote creatures I, I i never was um and they're effectively vampires i mean to just call them what they're vampires okay they're not the, the living dead or anything like that but for most of the movie it does kind of play it off as like you know a sickness or a virus or you know and that's a lot of zombie lore right there, you know? Um, but I mean, they decided to divide, diverge a little bit and do a little something different. And I'm okay with that because ultimately watching Will Smith's character in that and watching his psychological breakdown all while he goes out of his way every single day to protect himself and to keep himself safe. Um, it's a fun story for me because I wouldn't mind being there and seeing how I do. I don't think I do very well, but I don't mind. I, I, I like thinking about it. It's kind of fun. Um, so as far as the I Am Legend, I mean, yeah, there's definitely uh, some ties to it. Um, but there's also, I mean, and if you if you think about it, there's a ties to a lot of uh, other things, too. And... I have to look up the year so I make sure that I'm not uh, completely off my kilter here. Um, So that's the year. Okay, so in in so as long as it took to um, film Night of the Living Dead, uh, and it took a long time. I mean, it took, as I recall, it took several chunks of time over the course of just about a year. But in um, 69, um, Michael Crichton's Andromeda Strain came out. And I think Andromeda Strain is where the impetus to blame it on, you know, a radioactive satellite thing 
came from. You know, because as the movie starts, they're not really talking about that. And then as the movie goes on and on and more, and they're talking more about, you know, they're talking with all the NASA scientists and all these other people like that. So I think that's where that came from. Um, because, I mean, if if you haven't read the book Andromeda Strain, read it, like, tomorrow. Because it's fucking amazing. It is fucking amazing. But you can see where some little tidbits might have been borrowed from it. But, I mean, that's just... That's just art, right? I mean, it, that's what everyone does. If it's really fucking good, somebody steals it. I mean, come on. That's just how it works. Uh, but overall, I mean, and I love what you pointed out, too, about how they go through the whole movie, and nobody ever utters the word zombie once. The closest they get is the word ghoul. Um, and I think one of, the re- one of the really cool recurring themes in this movie is the use of the TV and the use of radio to sort of keep feeding you ten bits of information on what's going on. And right at the beginning, uh, when they pull up to the cemetery to to put the uh, the little decorative thing on their father's grave, the radio starts working and they turn it off and they don't hear the broadcast. Um, and it's like, if you had just left the radio on for like ten more seconds, you might have just got back in the car and said, hell with it, and driven back. But at the same time, if you go back or if you go to the remake of the 1991 with uh, with Bill Mosley and Patricia Tallman, the dynamic between the two of them when they first start the movie is oddly very similar, but it's also very different. And one of the one of the great lines um, from Bill Mosley in that is that, you know, why did he have to be buried 200 miles from the nearest glass of beer? Mm. And it's just it's so it's just I mean, there's. A little bit of modernization to it, but the vibe is still there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, of course, we open with Barbara and Johnny pulling up to the graveyard, as you mentioned, and they're basically there to lay a wreath down uh, on their father's grave, uh, which is, of course, a request from their mother, who did not travel with them, because, uh, you know, three is definitely a crowd, and she'd probably just be giving them sass the entire time, I'm sure, being a backseat driver, as they normally do. Uh, but what's what's great about this is, like, Johnny, uh, at the start, is very mocking of just this idea of, like, visiting the gravestone of someone that, you know, they just can't even remember. Uh, Barbara is definitely more compassionate you know she's the one kneeling down at the grave to you know offer up prayers uh, and you know johnny just basically tells her like you know praying's for church you know he just laughs at the idea about being damned and uh you know it's 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 very obvious that like with the antagonizing that's going on that it's really like setting this up for like all right well uh whatever happens to him well it's on him because he's just being a little bit of an asshole uh, with the teasing of his sister. Because, you know, we, we do see someone else in the graveyard. And, of course, that's when we got the, the very teasing line. The one that everyone just knows by heart at this point. If they've seen the, the movie about they're coming to get you, Barbara. Look, there's one now. And then, of course, uh, you know, our, our ghoul, you know, approaches Barbara gets his uh hands on her and you know going back it's it's always interesting to me like this iteration at least at first it's like it's very handsy you know because barbara like when she describes the attack later on when she gets to the farmhouse is basically talking about like how the 
the ghoul was trying to, like, rip her clothes off. And, of course, that kind of also ties into, you know, Return of the Living Dead with the graveyard scene and trash, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, but... You know, it's it's really early on. It's like Johnny's just set up to be like, okay, he's an antagonizer. He's going to get his. And sure enough, right out of the gate, he's the first to go. It's one of those things where, where I think they had two choices. They either had to make him the hero or they had to smoke him fast. Mm. And... I think once they had Dwayne Jones cast and they understood what a powerful actor he was, I mean, I I almost think that there probably was like maybe another whole page of Johnny's script and somebody just put a big red X through it and wrote, Johnny dies, <laughs> you know? Um, well, and I don't think that there's anybody through his antagonism that didn't feel like he had it coming. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, and I, it, maybe it says something about the time or you know, the times, whatever else, that we've left this helpless woman alone to defend for herself, you know? And it's like, it's kind of, kind of what he did throughout this entire movie. And he did it with a lot of the characters where he gave them these moments of peril. And it's like, you're either going to arise to the occasion or you're not. Um, and it was, it almost felt like a, it almost felt like a study of, okay, so he almost kind of sat back and said, okay, so what are you going to do? And almost let the characters evolve for themselves. Um, and it's one of the things that I always, and I think we talked about it a lot last night while we were watching this, and it's like, I, I, Barbara st starts out sort of doing okay. Like, I'm going to get out of here, you know, and she... You know, she sort of gets the car going, but then, you know, as a lady might panic and wrecks the car. And then it's just like, well, OK, what now? So she's so she's constantly kind of doing this. But then once she's into the into the house, you know, and I think it it's, talks a little bit about the times, too. It's like, OK, so the lady's in her house. She's supposed to be able to let her hair down and be comfortable and do whatever else. But she just completely like decompensates and just turns into like a sniveling little ball of nothing and is effectively useless for the rest of the movie, which is in and of itself odd, but it also makes her an interesting uh, like study of life at that point. And it's like, okay, yeah, if shit hits the fan, guess what? There's people that are going to rise to the occasion and there's people that aren't. And she is clearly in the aren't category. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 weird, too, because it's like part of me wants to chalk it up to just the fact that, you know, Dwayne Jones just had a bigger presence on screen. Um, but, you know, they were also kind of like just talking about how they were kind of like so mystified by Barbara's like terror that like she would show with her expressions that, that they kind of like shoehorned her into, like, being that way for, you know, the rest of the film, essentially. Uh, but, you know, regardless of that, you know, when we're talking about, you know, current time in America when, when this was made, obviously, you know, we had the civil rights movement and, uh, you know, a lot of the massive changes going on in, in the States. And, you know, even if the role for Ben wasn't written for, you know, in African-American lead you know, it definitely racially charged 
uh, the film. And I know, oh. I know he was like very hands on too, like with uh, the character itself, because like this was someone who I want to say he was like a university professor, if I'm not mistaken. So he wanted to make the character, you know, more sophisticated uh, in the way that you know he's just kind of like presenting himself. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's been it's been discussed at nauseum whether the character was written as an African American or not. Mm-hmm. Um, if you see some of the original dialogue, um, it, it's easy to see that maybe it was, but it was written from more of a perspective of an inner city African-American, somebody who was a little more streetwise and had a little bit of the jive going on or whatever else. And uh, Dwayne Jones was not having that. He was not having being, you know, the a late 60s gangster guy. He just was not having it. And uh, he, I mean, there was many times where he just flat out said, um, yeah, that's not what this guy would say. And he said, I'm going to say this instead. And everybody kind of went, what? <laughs> and he's like, no, this is just what I'm going to do. And they're like, okay. And that's what they ended up keeping in the movie. So, I mean, clearly it was a better character, right? Um, at the same time, I mean, they do... They do a good job in the movie of sort of keeping the racial tension up without making the racial tension the forefront. Um, because it's almost one of those things where it's like, you know, you walk into the family reunion, you know, in the South, and the one girl's brought home the black boyfriend. You know what everyone's thinking, mm-hmm. right? But nobody says it out loud. But then the guy starts talking, and then over the course of the film, you can watch the respect level grow. You can watch it, and especially through, I think, Tom and Judy, the characters, where they definitely, their allegiance sways over to one side. And I don't think it has anything to do with color. It has to do with, well, this guy's clearly smart. He's clearly got a plan. And what he is saying makes a lot more sense than the other guy who just wants to lock the basement door and hope for the best, right? Um, Now, with Cooper, I mean, Cooper is... Cooper is what he is, you know? He's, there's a word he wants to use. He's never going to say it out loud because it just wouldn't have been popular. Um, but he, for whatever reason, like, you know, holds himself back from doing that. Um, and then even as they develop a good plan, he's like, he begrudgingly goes along. So it's like, even he sees that Ben is smarter than he is and has a better plan. So, I mean... If there's ever a, an attitude you should take towards life, it's like, just shut up, close your eyes and listen. And sometimes it doesn't matter who somebody is. Maybe they have a better plan. Now, maybe their plan sucks. And if it sucks, that's fine. Say their plan sucks. I don't have any problem with that. But just give give people an opportunity to be heard and like, you know, say, here's what I'm thinking. What do you guys think? You know, and uh, uh, this movie shows that I think in a situation like this where everything has gone absolutely to hell, people can think if given the opportunity. Absolutely. And just like going off of uh, just zombies in like even black culture, um, you know, a lot of this was kind of like tied into, if you guys haven't seen it, Wes Craven's The Serpent and the Rainbow, which was released in 1988 uh, because... Uh, it, it ties a lot into like uh, Haitian folklore and 
like necromancy. So definitely go check out uh, the Serpent and a Rainbow if you want to like dive into like some of the like the earlier uh, roots of just zombie culture. Uh, but yeah, getting back to like the opening though, it's like you know we're we're just we're set up for Barbara to essentially become the lead primarily just because of the fact that like. You know, we've already established a little bit of backstory. We have a little bit of a familial uh, connection. Uh, and Ben just kind of comes out of nowhere. Uh, but we do know through his monologue how he ended up at the farmhouse. Uh, but, you know, we're not really given too much more beyond that. It's almost as if, you know, Ben's story here is kind of like a secondary narrative. Uh, but that kind of just changes the moment uh, when he essentially just slaps the hysteria out of Barbara, uh, who is still in this state of shock after what had happened to her brother Johnny in the graveyard and making her grand escape. And I, I think the part that, like, really makes me laugh is just knowing that, you know, this car that they're driving uh, to the cemetery was basically, like, uh, Johnny's mom's car, or the actor. Uh, and it was just kind of, like, on loan, essentially, and, uh, you know, something had happened where there was, like, a dent in the car, and they kind of just, like, added that scene in to kind of, like, explain it. Uh, so, like, when she hits the car, it, it was basically just to cover that, that up. <laughs> but, hey, at least Barbara had enough common sense to, uh, after the crash, not try to go out of the door that was essentially blocked by the tree trunk. You know, she had enough common sense to actually go out of the passenger's side of the car uh now with that being said you already did kind of mention you know obviously barbara and ben are not the only ones who have been holed up in this farmhouse uh we are also introduced to the cooper family as well as the teenage couple of tom and judy uh so we have henry cooper and ben who are essentially at odds right out of the get-go as they are fighting over uh, leadership and how to best protect themselves in the situation that they find themselves in. Uh, Henry had basically just been holding himself up in the basement uh, where he had boarded up the door one way in, one way out. Uh, and basically him and his family have been hiding down there while Ben was boarding up the windows and the doors of the farmhouse to make everything more secure. And I, I absolutely love that, you know, in this first interaction when they're kind of like two bulls batting heads together, you know, they they really drive it home that Henry could absolutely understand like what was happening above him. You know, he likes to say like, oh, well, like how, how, how was I supposed to know it wasn't just, you know, a bunch of people just like rummaging through the place. But he also made it sound like he couldn't actually hear anything. So it's just like, well, right out of the gate, obviously everything you're telling me is a like a flat-out lie, and Ben could basically see it right through him. Well, first of all, you're killing me because you're calling Harry Henry, which is driving me insane. So do a little find and replace, and every everywhere it says Henry, replace it with Harry. It's Harry Cooper. <laughs> you're killing me. <laughs> um... But I think you're right. I mean, and just going from the start where he's like, we have to board things up and we have to, I mean, he's doing all these things. Anybody who was in the basement of the house would hear that racket and mm -hmm. at some point would have to, I mean, now a little bit of what he says is maybe like, it could have been those things tearing the place apart. Now he's not wrong, 
Okay, but this is also, given the time, this is also where we have our differential between people and between, you know, the, well, these perceived differences that we have. Um, and so you can ultimately tell yourself any lie that you want to tell yourself, you know, for your reason to not get involved. I mean, and, and I think people, we do that every day. We tell ourselves all kinds of lies for reasons to not get involved. Um, but I mean, but ultimately everybody does like even Harry's wife, Helen kind of comes around to, well, Oh, there's a TV, there's a radio. There's all, I mean, so like the, the obvious things that you would want to use in that moment are available. Um, they've gone out of their way to like board up the house. Um, and if you see the if you see the remake, there are some really key moments in there where they're talking about boarding up the house that are really really good, um, and materials you should use and materials you shouldn't use. Um, but at the same time, I mean, you have you have this guy, and this is I'm gonna sadly try to defend Harry Cooper a little bit here and say there's a piece of me that gets it. It's like you're driving through the country, your car breaks down people attack it it gets flipped over your kid is hurt i mean so i like i sort of get it too so but that's one of the things the movie does really well is is put you in a place where it's like well okay who would i side with mm -hmm. and depending on who you are what your situation is whatever else it might be one or the other and you really can't fault anybody either way because you can sort of see it yeah, and it's it's true in a sense. Uh, I I think a lot of people would probably take the the standpoint uh, with Harry, where it's like the the seller is it is easier to secure just because there is only one entrance way. But the the other side of the coin to that obviously is like, well, you don't really have an escape route at that point either. But the seller. Uh, to me, definitely would be, like, the last resort. You know, if you're trying to buy time, like, that would be the best place to be. Obviously, there's a lot, you know, less entry points, you know, less windows to smash through and things like that. Uh, and, you know, it does kind of come full circle towards the end of the movie, too, because Ben ultimately does have to use the seller for, for safety. Well, and so that's that's the one of the things that has like driven a call it a night of the living dead argument that I've seen more times than I can even count, and it's the, you know, it's the the attic versus the basement argument, um, or some people call it the board the windows or go to the or go to the basement argument. Um, I think people like to fight so much that they don't nobody ever bothers to like look at the merits of each one and. I think you said it. There's there's one point to defend. You know, it's easy to get on there. And it clearly actually works in this movie. Like, he's safe, right? At the same time, zero access to the supplies, zero access to water, zero access to, I mean, a bathroom if you needed it. Um, but I, I think it's honestly one of the kind of silly little points of this whole thing that makes discussing this movie fun is because there are people that will f that will defend the basement or defending board the windows up to the death. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's so fun to listen. People get fired all up. Just get fired the hell up. And it's like, 
So I, I'm a board up the windows guy. I'm not a basement guy. Uh, how about you? Are you are you basement or board the windows? Uh, basement is 100% last resort. Last resort. Okay, so you do everything else and then do that. So yeah. And I think that's where anybody that has a shred account, because, I mean, if you're having to run to the basement, things have gone so bad that it doesn't matter. Your next glass of water or your next can of beans is not your next thought. It's just, I need to be alive five minutes from now, so let's just see how it goes. Um but it's a fun discussion and it gets people fired up and the things that people say are just absolutely crazy. So it's super fun. Um, but you know, I ultimately think you're right about, I mean, Harry Cooper is, I think Harry Cooper in this movie, he ultimately represents, he kind of represents the man as it were. And, you know, the man has ideas and the man always knows what's good for you and you should do all that. And I think ultimately, I think Ben represents free thought and he's like, you know what? I'm going to think for myself. And just because I don't agree with you doesn't mean that you got to try to take over, but we all know that the man thinks otherwise when it comes to that. Um, and it makes it, it's another one of those things where they have so many little sectors of society that come into this movie and they come into what you see on the screen. Um, I mean, because we have, we have a woman that's, you know, basically catatonic. We have an African-American man in the middle of the sticks who clearly doesn't live there, doesn't have any relatives, whatever else. We do have the hillbilly and his girlfriend who are from around there. And then we have the kind of quint quintessential white picket fence white family that have gone through too and we put them all in a blender and we're we're expecting everything to blend perfectly and no matter times how many times we hit the button we still have all the same they won't blend right they just won't blend and it makes it a fun thing to watch from you know one side of the uh the ant colony glass because it just over time, the tension that it builds, even as they're formulating plans, it's like people are like, well, I'm going to do this, but I don't really like it, you know? Um, but that's also a, like a big part of life. We go along with things that we don't like all the time. So it builds a really, it builds a really fun narrative and, and just, and then, oh, by the way, there's flesh eating ghouls outside that are trying to kill us. So maybe we should, uh, quit nitpicking at each other and get our shit together and focus on the problem. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, uh, Helen at times is definitely at ends with her husband uh, and, you know, Harry's decisions. Uh, but, you know, for the most part, I would say like she does kind of like remain pretty passive throughout uh, with a lot of her concerns solely being placed upon the fate of her daughter. Uh, and of course, Alana with that, uh, they, they are kind of like keeping something from, uh, you know, the rest of the group. And that's just the fact that uh, Karen, their daughter, has been bitten by one of the ghouls earlier uh, on at some points, you know, probably before they got inside the farmhouse. Uh, and, you know, had they been given information, heard access to the radio or the television or, you know, wh what have you, uh, maybe... The fate could have been a little bit different because obviously, as you would come to expect with uh, any zombie movie, that uh, comes back to bite them in the ass later on. Well, okay, you're right. But here's the one thing I think that you're not factoring into your recipe. 
this was the first zombie movie. Mm-hmm. Okay. So to know that Karen was bitten, I don't think is that all that important a piece of information given what they know. Now, as they watch the news stories and they hear the broadcast and pieces of information get filled in, I think it does become more important. But when it first happens, I don't think anybody knows how substantial a thing that is, you know, because they really don't know. I mean, now zombie movies. Now we all know it. If you get bit, you're fucked. Right. But when this movie came out, that wasn't a thing being bitten and being fucked wasn't a thing. So, you know, cause they did allude to the little girl being hurt, mm-hmm. you know, they didn't say why. And then later, uh, Cooper does say, you know, one of those things grabbed her and bit her on the arm. But even then, Ben's reaction is not one of those, oh, my God, let's put her outside the walls before she turns, you know, because they don't really know. So it's not. It's the rare opportunity that this movie has being the first of its kind that that wasn't even a thing. That wasn't a thing that people would think about, you know, whereas in our culture today, it's like, you know, if. The zombie apocalypse starts and your neighbor runs over and goes, one of them bit me. The first thing you can do is shoot him in the face and then close your door. <laughs> I mean, that's just all you're going to do. You know, so it, it this this movie had some rare opportunities to really, uh, to sort of set the stage for things that were going to happen. And one of those things was, I don't think that they would have any idea. So it wouldn't just be, you know, as much as it does come to bite him in the ass, it isn't really the call to arms that it is today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they basically just kind of like chalk it up to like essentially being a flu. Basically, yeah, yeah. There's no, there's no urgency with it, and, but I think that's part of what makes this fun. I mean, and for, I'm jealous because we had a couple of our followers that were seeing this for the first time last night, and I'll admit I was jealous that you were seeing it for the first time, <laughs> because that is such an experience. It's like it's something I'll never have again. Um, but it's, it's kind of incredible, but I think even the people that were seeing it for the first time today probably have enough knowledge of, we'll call it zombie culture because of the walking dead, because of black summer, because of things like that, where they understand the gravity of being bitten back then. And when this movie first came out, there was no gravity to it. You were just hurt. There was no, you know, uh oh, you're going to become one, you know? So that, I mean, that in and of itself is awesome. That it's like, it, it didn't really affect her. Oh, she's hurt. You know, if we leave, she's going to have to be carried. Or, and and ben, ben, of course, being the badass that he is, is like, well, I can carry the kid, you know, no big deal. It's just a, it's, it's just an awesome thing to think about that you didn't have to think about it. Like it wasn't part of the conversation. And that's just fantastic. We also had uh, Tom and Judy, who were kind of just like ca- caught in the middle of uh, the major spat uh, between Harry and Ben fighting over, you know, who who should be the, the sensible leader. Uh, and, you know, in a lot of situations, like Tom was the one who was essentially serving as like this bridge of communication between, you know, both parties. Uh, but even with when Harry uh, basically gave up leadership to Ben uh, begrudgingly. Uh, you know, uh, it was really his pride that like prevents him from like fully trusting 
Ben and his, you know, survival, you know, tactics, uh, you know, outside, like, obviously, like, th- there is racial tension between the two, and that's fairly obvious right out of the get-go. Uh, you know, he just insists that, you know, when it comes to the safety of everyone, obviously, this, the cellar is uh, the, the best place to be, uh, but they get into, like, a bigger argument about, like, resources and revisions in the farmhouse, uh, because, you know, Harry just feels like he has an equal right to everything that's in there. Uh, and yeah. we just kind of, like, get to the point where Ben basically tells him, you know, I'll be the boss up here, you can be the boss down in the cellar. You know, it's just kind of like, fend for yourself. If you think that's where you're going to be the safest, you know, go ahead. But everything up here is mine. You know, it's just part of the house. Well, and that's where in... If you think about just about every zombie movie or every zombie show that you've had, that is ultimately where a lot of the division starts, mm-hmm. right? And maybe the funniest, and funny is the wrong word, so don't get up my ass about using the word funny, but it, the strangest, the the most thought-provoking things about this is that the only person in this movie that doesn't seem to have given a single thought to the fact that Ben is black is Barbara, the catatonic woman. Mm-hmm. She's just, and at the same time, he has gone out of his way, even given her state, to protect her and keep her safe. And so, if you're if you're honest, is it like these are probably the two only only the only two characters in this movie that don't give a rat's ass about what color somebody is. <laughs> They're the only two. It's like, we're just trying to survive, you know, and everyone else is playing their cards really, really close to the chest. And they're just, you know, they're, they're kind of circling the bonfire, trying to see what's going to happen and what's going to happen and whatever else. And, you know, Barbara's pretty much going to do whatever Ben tells her to do, you know, and just because he's played a pivotal role in her surviving up until this point and watching this movie does a brilliant thing of taking our, we'll call it our team, and coalescing our team, all while watching our team slowly fall apart. So it's it's so interesting watching this, where it's like, okay, here's this great plan, and we have to take the truck, we have to go out to the gas pump, we have to get the gas, we have to do these things. Um, and But as you watch the plan coalesce, and you watch everybody work so hard to like make it happen, Everyone's still sort of doing it through a, you know, a slightly like scowled eye. Like, mm, well, I'll, I'll kind of like you said, I'll go along with this for now, but I don't really know. Um, you know, and then as we see, as it's, you know, time to take a trip out to the gas station, things go, well, not the way anybody had planned. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, I mean, they rarely do. That, that's what happens when uh, you just have a ragtag group of people coming together uh, who are constantly at edge with one another. You know, things things rarely ever work right. And, uh, you know, sure enough, uh, they are getting to the gas pump. Uh, you know, they, they do have a key brain and they're, you know, trying to find the right key. And I'm glad they didn't do, like, the whole thing where it's like, oh, well, which key is it? And then they try, like, 18 different keys because, like... Everyone has that many keys on a key ring because what other reason would you have a key ring for if you have uh, just two keys? That wouldn't make any fucking sense. Uh, but regardless, it's just like, you know, they go through first one doesn't work and then Ben just shoots the damn lock off. 
And every time I see this movie, I just think like, yeah, maybe we shouldn't be like, you know, firing guns like right next to the gas pump. You know, it doesn't seem like the smartest idea, but, you know, who am I to say? But regardless, obviously, there's a ton of gasoline everywhere. And uh, Ben does kind of have a little bit of a torch. And sure enough, things do go up in flames. And uh, I have to say, like, that is kind of a common trend uh, with Night of the Living Dead. And it wasn't necessarily on purpose either, because uh, there were some uh, accidental fires or people setting themselves on fire during, you know, the shooting. Uh, and, uh-huh. uh, and uh, you know, sure enough, for our teenage couple, they uh, get incinerated when the, uh, the truck blows up. Well, and some of the... Uh... We'll call it uh, fire prevention slash firefighting. Actually, made it into the film. Like when you have Ben grabbing the the uh, what would you call it the the sack out of the back of the truck, and he's actually trying to put. He was actually trying to put a fire out because mm-hmm. somebody thought it would be a great idea to cover the scene in like hay or on the gas pump, like mm-hmm. a place that you would never have hay. And so he was actually doing that. Like, oh no, there's an actual fire. Shit, what am I gonna do? Um, but yeah, that, that moment where he just goes and he says it, he's like, watch the torch. And then, cause as soon as Tom picks up the gas pump, it's just spraying gas. And it's like, I, I this is going to sound absolutely terrible, but it's like, it's kind of like masturbating. You got to wait a minute to start squeezing, right? <laughs> because you, you got to wait a minute. And he just, and so as he and, um, oh, what the hell is her name? I can't think of her name. His girlfriend? It's Judy, 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 Judy is her name. They drive away and he's like, we got to get out of the truck. And she's like, my jacket's caught. And it's like, in today's terms, it's a, it's a trope, right? Mm-hmm. Back then, it was a new thing, you know? And they're both just instantly blown up by the truck. And I, more than one person last night said, so yeah, it's barbecue time. And it's what I think of every single time it happens because this is where we get some of the really hardcore zombies eating flesh from the bone scenes. I mean, and they're, they're right there. And that's the, uh, somebody's uncle worked at a slaughterhouse and brought up fresh things for people to chew on. And it's still so unbelievable that it actually did it. I mean, and that's called commitment to your craft, but holy shit, you know? And, but even, you know, watching Harry, you know, Harry's at the windows watching and everything blows up and gets super bright. And he's just like, oh, and then, but then, uh, as our main character is like sort of panicked, you know, I mean, he's, Ben is panicked at this point. He does, doesn't know what to do. And he's running back towards the house. And Harry has that sort of decisive moment where he's like, fuck it, I'm going to lock the door and go back. And he's going back to his core thing where he's like, screw it, I'm going back downstairs. Ben kicks in the door and they have that little face-off moment where, like, you're an asshole. No, you're an asshole. (laughs) But then it's like, bigger problems, let's block the door, and Harry comes to help him. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, so it's one of those things where it tells you that it's like, Sometimes even if you make the right decision, but you're a little bit late, people are still going to hold you accountable for it. And they get into a fist fight, and Ben basically whips the shit out of Harry. And Harry had it coming, so, you know, I'm completely fine with that part of it. 
but just the, I don't know. This to me was like the moment, one of the really first moments in this movie where it was like, okay, we might be screwed here. Like, we might not get out of this. Mm -hmm. Because I I honestly think that one of the things the movie does really well as time goes on is you you have people looking out the windows and they're giving you like a zombie count throughout the movie. I don't know if you ever noticed that, where they talked about, oh, there's like six or eight. Oh, now there's like 10 or 12. So they're doing this like constant zombie count. And this is the point where it's like, we've blown the truck up. It's a feeding frenzy. There's zombies everywhere. They're coming for the house. Now they're at at levels where we might not be able to, you know, basically handle it, let's call it. Um, and so I think things just go off the rails. And like I said, that's the point where Ben kicks uh, Harry's ass. And uh, Harry, honestly, he had it coming. Yeah, because in, in this, they don't really talk too much about, like, that sort of, like, horde mentality. Um, really, the only tidbit that we hear about that is the fact, like, that they were able to turn over a car. And this is, like, before, like, they concocted their, their plan to get the truck and tr- try to get to the gas pump to fill it up with gasoline so they could make uh, their, their grand escape. Uh, now, over the course of the movie, like, we do get a little bit of tidbits in regards to, like, new revelations uh, via, like, our our news reports uh, and our findings from, you know, our scientists. And, you know, we, we learn that there's essentially, like, this militia that is going, uh, I wouldn't say, like, house to house, but, like, they're they're basically, like, trying to clean up the area. Uh, and, you know, basically we have, like, a firing squad uh, disposed of all these ghouls, and, you know, they are slowly making their way towards the farmhouse, so help is slowly but surely on the way, uh, and, uh, you know, it, it does get to the farmhouse eventually, but as you would come to expect with, you know, just the number of ghouls rising, it does get to the point where they are able to break into the farmhouse, uh, and, you know, this is like that moment when Barbara actually sees, uh, Johnny, among the ghouls. Uh, yep, and <laughs> that's pretty much where she uh, looks at her cards and folds. Mm-hmm. She folds and just goes, "Well, and I've always honestly thought that her demise was a little bit unceremonious. Um, but at the same time, it sort of keeps in it keeps in character with." kind of what she's provided the group up until now. I mean, she's had she's had next to no fight in her. There's been a couple of times where she's, like, pawed a little bit and been like, no. But, I mean, she really hasn't... She really hasn't been a core functional member of the group, and for her to go out like that, it seemed sort of fitting. Mm-hmm. Where it was like, okay, well, there's your brother. You love him so much, go ahead, have him. You know, you're just, you're just toast. Um... Uh, but I mean, at the same time, that's also the spot where we really get our, I don't know, at this point, Ben and Harry have traded both blows and bullets, right? And, um, you know, Harry gets shot, he falls down the stairs, and while Ben is upstairs, like, trying to deal with everything that we have going on up there in terms of the house and all the windows being broken, the boards being knocked down. We have uh, 
Karen finally uh, wake up and make an appearance in the movie. And uh, she has got a thing or two to say to mommy about how she's being raised, I think. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, sure enough, we have, you know, kid ghouls in this one. And then, you know, years later in one, we're talking about like the uh, the Dawn of the Dead remake. We have the uh, Zombabies. So things truly have come full circle uh, in the circle of uh, undead, essentially. Uh, but yeah, like, of course, when it comes to, like, just the safety of, like, the, the farmhouse, numbers are eventually going to get too much. They break in. Uh, and, you know, Karen comes up from the basement and uh, starts to attack Ben. Uh, but, you know... It's it's a kid, you know, it just tosses her <laughs> aside yeah. uh, before, you know, retreated into the cellar. He locks the door behind him, uh, which, you know, there's there's always like that sense of irony because like obviously that was Harry's plan from the get go, you know, and for, for Ben, it was, you know, kind of his last ditch effort to keep himself safe at that point. The one thing I always think about this movie, and, and you're right, there's the the irony is not lost when you're when you're watching this. Um, I'm definitely a member of the boarded up crew, but there's also this piece of me that thinks if I had turned off the lights and just locked the doors, gone into the basement, you know, maybe taken some supplies and things with me, would these things never have coalesced around this house to start with? Mm-hmm. And and would everybody have been okay, at least up until the point where Karen woke up and then somebody had to, you know, get out the old shovel, as it were. Um, but it, it, the logic and the logistics ultimately hold. Like, if we would have been quiet, not made a lot of noise, turned the lights off, not been, you know... Because if you got zombies strolling through a field and they're looking around and they see a light in the distance, well, that's where they're going to go, right? So if you had just not done all of that and made a ton of racket and done whatever else. I mean, so it's that that basic logic of be quiet versus human nature that wants to survive and wants to do everything that you can do against it. So, I mean, it's ultimately probably the biggest dichotomy in this movie of the... Let's board the windows and do everything else and, and do all these things and defend ourselves to the death. Or do we just be quiet as a titmouse and we'll be fine? Um, and I think it's probably, without a doubt, I mean, the racial component notwithstanding, probably the biggest dichotomy in this movie. It's like, what if we just would have shut the fuck up mm-hmm. and just been quiet? <laughs> what? I mean, probably not as fun a movie, <laughs> just hiding in the basement. But I, Harry might have had a point. And mm-hmm. I... I I hate saying it. I hate saying it out loud, but Harry might have had a point. All I'm going to say is uh, if Harry was a little smarter, though, uh, when he got to the farmhouse, maybe he should have, you know, scavenged around a little bit more to, like, actually get supplies to bring down to the cellar with him. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Cause I think you're right. I think you're right, but I also think that he had a hurt kid and was panicked as hell, mm-hmm. so a lot of what he did made sense. Now... Once he was settled, should he have maybe opened that door a little sooner and peeked out and, you know, gone to the kitchen and grabbed a couple of cans of peaches and some other things like that and 
I'm guessing in that in that place, definitely a couple of guns and some moonshine. Yeah, he probably should have done all of that, you know, just to get by. Because in terms of time passing, it was roughly like 20 hours until help came. And you could have you could have sat by sucking on canned peaches, nursing a little moonshine and and having a pretty sweet lever action uh, rifle there to keep you safe just in case. And then help would have been there. Of course, knowing what we know now, once he opened the door, when that help got there, what would have happened? It's kind of hard to say <laughs> because in keeping with this film's like, I just don't give a shit attitude and you're just a character in a story. Um, our buddy Ben locks himself in the basement where he ultimately has to dispatch both Harry and Helen. Um, and then when help comes in the form of Sheriff McClellan and his zombie posse, um, Sheriff McClellan's little right-hand man um, thinks he hears something in the farmhouse. And as Ben opens the door to find a destroyed house, but no zombies. The house is absolutely leveled, but there's no zombies. And he creeps to a window to see what's going on. He gets one right between the eyes. Um, and our Sheriff McClellan, in keeping with uh, a guy with a job to do good, just says... There's another one for the fire. And it's it's definitely the point in the movie where if you're invested in your characters and black, white, red, orange, purple, whatever the fuck call I don't fucking care about all that shit. But if you're invested in your characters, this is fucking heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Um from both a character perspective but then if you're somebody who is super into zombies and super into the lore and super into what might happen, it, 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 it leaves you just deflated completely. Like, it might not fucking matter. I, like, I might do everything that I can do to possibly prepare for this and get a fucking bullet between the eyes anyway because I made a little bit of a racket in the farmhouse. Uh, and it's, I don't know, but it's what makes the movie so great, you know? Mm-hmm. We we spend 90-some minutes building this character up and making him almost a prophet in this apocalypse. You know, someone who's really going to have something to offer going forward. Someone who's really going to have a plan, and then we fucking shoot him right between the eyes. Uh, yep, just makes me sad yeah, this, every time. This, of course, is, you know, predating any uh, zombie potentially learning how to use a weapon. By several years, <laughs> exactly. So, so like, yeah. there's, like, when you when you when you look at the visual, like, there there was no reason to assume that uh, you know this person in the house was an actual flesh eater, uh, <laughs> but you know may, maybe it would have been different if uh, it was like a foggy afternoon or something that he was like coming out the front door. Uh, but either way, well, it, 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 as somebody who likes Gonzo, I'll tell you this. The guy that shot him was not looking through a scope. He was looking at him through iron sights from more than 100 yards away. Mm -hmm. So the one thing about that that you don't have is a hell of a lot of detail. You don't know what's going on. And 
that was it. I mean, they were they were in sweep and clear mode. That's what they were doing, mm-hmm. you know. And anything knocking around about inside the house, I mean, and call it what you want to call it, but in the end, it still makes sense that they did what they did. Yep, he was following um, orders too. Exactly. So it's like we just need to make we need to make the world safe again. And you know, sometimes when you're going to make an omelet, you got to break a few eggs, and it just it it happens. I mean, and I think it's another one of those things where it's it's a it's a side note or a footnote in the history of society where sometimes when things needed to get better, some people that didn't necessarily need to die had to die. And it's just what happens. You know, it's still sad, though, because Ben is such a profound character. I mean, he's eh. Dwayne Jones playing this guy. I mean, there is there are few movies where you walk into it. And whether it be a movie of this genre or anything else, where you are so just enamored by a character, where you just get in and you just love a character so much and you just want to see him succeed and you see what he's doing and he's just so badass. And in the end, he's just, he's unceremoniously shot. And then getting into, call it the end credits, the end credits with the meat hooks is somehow almost more disgusting than everything <laughs> else that you've seen up to this point, where it's just like, well, they're dead. They're just sacks of meat. Let's just drag them out and get them on the bonfire and call it good. It's uh, it's brutal to watch, but you understand why it ended that way. You get it. Even if you don't like it, you get it. Absolutely. So in the end, uh, we have a kill count of eight altogether, not counting any, uh, you know, flesh eaters, uh, oh. I, I, I will say. But it, it's it's interesting to know, like, just how much time there is between, you know, when Johnny gets his, you know, skull cracked open on the gravestone in the cemetery uh, to when we have, like, our truck explosion. Because uh, there was a good hour in between those uh, those moments. Yeah, the whole movie is less than 24 hours. I think it's about 18 to 20 hours total. Um, and maybe not even that much, because if you if you listen to them talk when they get to the cemetery and then they talk about having to drive back, um, Johnny was saying it wouldn't be till after midnight. So that's, uh, and it's a three-hour drive, but that there's like a daylight savings time thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like they even they're even bashing daylight savings time. So it's gotta be eight, nine o'clock at night, you know, in the midst of summer. And then it's like the next morning. So honestly, it might even be only twelve hours that is like total past. But so much happens in that twelve hours. It's just unbelievable, you know, from the world falling apart to all the things you see happen in Washington. And now admittedly with what they see on TV, um, it seems like a lot more time passes. But then if you if you take out the a little electronic talking box and you just see what happens to the characters, yeah, it's like 12 hours time. And we go from all that happening to, you know, the posses have formed and now we're going along and, you know, we're going to get things cleaned up, you know. Um, and that if you if you see the uh, if you see the remake, the. Uh, the posse's at the end, and especially the end of the movie, um, you will definitely like. 
you will because it is not the same. I mean, not the same, but still does a good job of conveying the overall vibe. So anyway, yeah, so Night of the Living Dead 68. Like I said, in my top one of movies, <laughs> um, I'm always going to love it. I'm always going to love how it it framed my love for cinema and story when I was a kid. And it, tales of society and society and, and its breakdown and it, ultimately how we judge our friends and neighbors and why we judge them and some of the really fucking stupid reasons we judge them. Um, but just, uh, it's, it is honestly, it's where Grindhouse Zombie came from. It's the movie that birthed that. So, um, a lot of years I didn't know Grindhouse Zombie was in there, and it's only been the last maybe 10 that I knew he was there and he had to come out. But thank you, George Romero. That's all I can say is thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. So if you guys haven't seen Night of the Living Dead, go check it out. It's, uh, you, I mean, it's public domain. You can find it in the Internet Archive where you can stream it for free. Uh, I think Freeverse has it in a few other locations. So go check yeah. it out if you haven't. And uh, you can go check out the other versions as well, whether it's uh, the 90 remake or the 30th anniversary, which had a couple of reshoots uh, added a into couple. it. Yep. There's a colorized version of it that is just in color. It's really not anything special. I mean, something about something about the black and white just makes it better. It just it just makes it feel. It gives it that. And I hate to use the word, but it gives it that like old school vintage feel. When you see it in color, it's I don't know when Barbara's when Barbara's trench coat's actually beige. It just takes it takes something out of it. You know, it just does. So, I mean, see it, but. Don't prepare or prepare yourself to not be moved a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So just as a reminder, uh, our next watch party is Thursday this week, which will continue our new release watches. Uh, I'll be posting the two uh, options in the Discord. Uh, but again, it'll be a later stream on my end, probably around 1030 or 11 p.m. Central. So uh, basically like an hour and a half two hours later than our normal time since I'm going to go see Dune Part 2 tomorrow at the 7 o'clock show. Greatly looking forward to that. Uh, just because, like, obviously, like, in regards to major movies that were pushed back because of the strike, Dune was by far and large the uh, the biggest movie that uh, got moved. So, finally happy that uh, we'll get an opportunity to see it. And uh, I've been hearing nothing but fantastic things. So, fingers crossed. <laughs> Well, I I hope you absolutely love it because I I uh, the first Dune when I saw it I came home from the theater and my gut instinct was to scrape my shoe on the sidewalk to get Dune off my foot. <laughs> um, that's just me. I know lots of people loved it, and I'm not gonna crap on anybody that loves it. That was just not my jam at all. Um, yeah, and maybe if I can get all my ducks in a row here, I might do something in our Discord a little bit earlier than that for the older people that want to go to bed at a reasonable time. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, bite me. Okay, I'm old. Deal with it. <laughs> um, so uh, I have a couple of options, too. So we'll see how that goes. And if I am by some miracle still awake, well, then we'll see you for the second feature. <laughs> 
Sounds good. Uh, but looking ahead, obviously, this uh, wraps up our necrophobia. I know you had mentioned, uh, what was it, hibernophobia? Which was the... That sounds about right. The, 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 the fear. The fear, the fear of, the of the Irish. Irish. <laughs> <laughs> um... Now, if I'm not, I I think I've done the first Leprechaun on on the show. If I'm not mistaken, um, so I don't uh, I don't want to like outright just say like we are for sure doing the Leprechaun movie next. Uh, let's uh, take a couple of days and figure out what we want to do on that end. But I do want to do that one. It's just a matter of just you know filling out the four weeks, uh, for for that. So expect some Irish horror uh for call it call it, for March. Call it irish horror and we could, there's there's some good irish horror so yeah let's uh let's just call it that and you know it's a it's a good month for it and keep in mind on march 13th it's a wednesday a recording night your pal grindhouse is turning 50 so my wife decided that we have to have a big party so i will be busy that night i'm sure we will catch up that weekend i i have no doubt but uh yeah Send your uh, birthday wishes to the bone bag that is uh, Grindhouse Zombie uh, for for his uh, 50th or 150th, whatever it is. I, I've been around so long, I don't even remember anymore. Um, but uh, yeah, and then we'll get into good old uh, good old March, do some St. Patty's Day folly, and just uh, have a good frickin' time. That's what we'll do. Absolutely. So with that being said, guys, that will do it for us here tonight on Handle Whisker. Uh, we'll see you tomorrow night in the Discord and also on Kick later on for our new release stream. And uh, yeah, you guys enjoy your weekends. We'll see you next week. Just remember, they're coming to get you, Barbara.